due to God's blessing, we can turn back to the portion of Scripture which we read in Isaiah chapter 55. We can take our text today from verses 6 to 9 of that chapter. Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 9. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Well, the prophecy of Isaiah, the context behind it is quite difficult, and there's quite a lot of things going on in this book. But to sort of generalize a wee bit, to give us a wee bit of context, when you're reading the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters of that book are really speaking about how Judah, not Israel, this is after Judah and, and Israel had split away from each other, but the two tribes, which are now called Judah, and they had gone against God. God had been so good to them. He brought them into the promised land. He'd given them everything that they had desired. He gave them a king. He gave them food. He gave them prosperity. Where Judah was located, if you were traveling from the south to the north, or the north to the south, you had to go through it. So there was there lots of opportunity for the people in Judah to make money. And that's what they did. They prospered in worldly things, much like Scotland has today. And that's not a bad thing in itself. But it's what came along with that prospering. You see, when they got money, they forgot about God. When they got the things that they'd been looking for in the world, they thought they forgot about the spiritual things. And so, although they kept up the formality of worship in the temple, their hearts weren't really in it. And the Bible that they were reading, they weren't really putting into practice the words which were in it. And so you found that although there were many rich people in Judah, there were also many poor people. And the rich people didn't really seem to care for them. And justice had really gone out of the window. It wasn't a strange thing for a man to bribe a judge in order to win a court case or anything like that. There was much evil reigning in Judah. And so, because of their evil and because of their allegiances with other worldly, idolatrous nations, God said that the day was coming when Judah would be brought into captivity. And what I mean by that is this. They would be taken out of their land. They would be taken out of their country, Judah. Their country would be destroyed. Their temple would be destroyed, the walls of Jerusalem would be knocked down, and they would be taken up northwest to Babylon. Basically, they left to be slaves, just as they were to the Egyptians before Moses took them out. So, what they had been taken out of in Egypt because of their sin and because of their unthankfulness to God, they would be put back in in Babylon, just in the same way, and perhaps even worse than they were in Egypt. And yet, when you read in much of the prophecy of Isaiah, and especially from, say, for example, chapters 40 to about 55, 56, 
You, you read here of the mercy of God toward that people. You read of his grace, how he's provided a saviour, a saviour who we read of so clearly in these chapters, especially in chapter 53, one who was to be sent to save these people, to bring them back out of Babylon and into their own land again. And he was telling them really that although your land has been burnt up, and although there remains nothing in it, yet I'm going to make it a fruitful land again, if you but believe. And so he tells him about this Saviour in chapter 53, and in chapter 54 he tells of the blessings that will come from this Saviour. And here in chapter 55 we have the great offer to partake of these blessings. And so at the beginning of this chapter we read, O everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Come ye, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. They come, buy wine and not without money and without price. And what he's basically saying is, if you keep a desire for spiritual things, see that they come. But the text that I want to look at today is another invitation to sinners, not only those who are thirsty this time, but anybody who falls into being into the category of being a guilty sinner. And so I just want to walk through these verses and let the Lord speak to us in his word. So we read, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. What are we being asked to do? Well, firstly, we're being asked to seek after God. And what does it mean to seek after God? Well, Jeremiah tells us that you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your hearts. And so to seek after God is to search for him with all of our hearts. And I'm sure that some of you as adults here have perhaps played hide and seek with young children, whether that be grandchildren or your own children or whatever. And you know, you've been doing it quite half-heartedly, perhaps better things to do. But if you remember what it was like when you were a child yourself, and you were the one looking for the other children, and how important it was to find these children. It was the most important thing that you could do at that time, to find them, to seek them, to search for them. Well, you see, that's the kind of enthusiasm that's required here when we are seeking after God. We are to not stop until we find them. But where, where are we to look for God? Where are we going to find him? Well, we're to find him in the means of grace. What are the means of grace? Well, the means of grace are just the means or the instruments by which God imparts grace to his own people. So the means of grace are the things by which God converts his people and blesses them. And so a few examples of these means of grace are the word of God is a means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace. Having fellowship with the Lord's people is a means of grace. Attending the public worship services as a means of grace. And so, if you are seeking after God today, then see that you seek for Him in the means of grace. See that you are often in the Word of God. See that you are often praying to Him and that you make every effort to attend every worship service in this building and in any other building if you can because it's in these situations that God promises to meet with his people and to bless them. But we're also called 
upon to call upon the Lord. We read here, seek the Lord when you may be found to call upon him while he is near. I believe this is talking about one of these things of his, namely prayer. Now in Second Chronicles chapter 7, God says to Solomon, he says that my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And so here, as scripture speaks today, we are a promise from the God who cannot lie. And if we but humble ourselves, turning away from our sin, if we seek after God in prayer, if we ask for him the things of our hearts, the things which are according to his will, that he will be gracious to us and that he will hear us. And so here we are called for us not to neglect prayer, but to call upon God, asking that he accept of us in Jesus Christ. Because you see, nobody ever came to Christ without prayer. Prayer is as natural to the Christian as crying is to a baby. And so Jesus himself calls on us to pray, to ask for things of God, to ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and him that knocks shall have the door opened to him. But notice this also, that we are to seek God and we are to call upon him while he is near and while he is to be found. Now why did he add these caveats? Well, the first thing that we can learn from this is just this, that God is near today. He's near today in the gospel. We are still in the day of his patience and of his mercy. We are told that now is the accepted time. That now, that today is the day of salvation. And God continues to call us while we are in this day of grace, while we are on mercy's ground. And so I would plead with you today to seek after him and to call upon him while it is yet day. Because the second thing that we can learn from this is just this, that these words also strongly imply to us that the day is coming when he will no longer be found, and neither will God be near. And you know, this is one of the most forgotten truths in the church today. If we keep on neglecting the call of the gospel, that that opportunity will be taken away from us. And you know, it's the devil's most successful trick tell us that we have plenty of time to become Christians. And so we find many today, perhaps even in this building, and what they say is this, well, I'll become a Christian when I'm older. Well, I'll become a Christian when this happens, or when that happens. Or just a few more years in the world, just a few more years to enjoy the pleasures of what this world can offer me. And yet the solemn, things, the solemn thing is this, that although we have many promises in this Bible, that tomorrow is not promised to us. In fact, tomorrow you could be in eternity and me with you. And you know there's no hope in a lost eternity. There's no gospel preached in hell. In hell the day of mercy and grace is gone. But you know, there may also come a time in your own life when your heart becomes incurably hardened to the things of God. 
So that even though you might find any sign in your soul just now to be a Christian, there's no guarantee that you're going to have that in a year's time, or in ten years' time, or in twenty years' time. Remember when Paul preached the gospel to Felix? He was in prison, and Felix allowed him out into his court to preach the gospel. And you know, Paul preached with great power. And Felix trembled. But what he said to him was this. He said, go your way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. Well, did that convenient season ever come for Felix? Well, we don't know. But certainly when he left two years later, he left the Apostle Paul in prison. And as far as we can see, he had no word of the gospel which had made him tremble when he first heard it. Because you see, there's many who with King Agrippa say, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And yet these almost persuaded people, so many of them, they become hardened by the fears of this world. And in a number of years' time, as I've said, they've got no word of the gospel because God's Spirit won't always strive with man. We have it here in the Word of God that the day is coming when he will be a pharaoh and he won't be found. The day of patience will be over. And perhaps you might be living and the day of patience will be over. God has offered the gospel to you so many times and you've rejected it. His Spirit won't always strive with man. My friends, you see, the gospel is urgent. The gospel isn't something that you can just mull over for a few weeks and think about it. It's something which requires your urgent attention, your urgent, careful attention. Why? Because you don't know, neither do I, how long the offer is going to last for. Well, as we go on to verse 7, we read, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And here we see that a call to repentance in verse 7 goes hand in hand with a call to faith in verse 6. The famous Baptist minister in London, C.H. Spurgeon, said that there is no savior for a man who won't forsake his sin. And you know, that's a solemn truth. The wicked must forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. But you might be saying to yourself today, well, I might not be perfect, but I'm not wicked. And I certainly wouldn't call myself unrighteous. I know I'm not perfect, but surely I'm not these things. But, you know, we have to exegete these words to see what they're really saying in the context. And the context is this, that this isn't talking about how you are in your own eyes. It's not even talking about how you are in the eyes of other men and other women. It's talking about how you are in the eyes of God. And you know, in Psalm 14, we read that God looks down from heaven and he sees that all have gone aside. They are all become filthy. There is none that does good. No, not one. And so, we learn that we are all wicked. We are all unrighteous in the eyes of God. Because the, the world's view of morality changes. What's right today might be wrong tomorrow. And certainly what was wrong yesterday seems to be right today. But God's view of morality doesn't change. God himself doesn't change. And we've all fallen short of this standard. We've all sinned and fallen short of this glory. And therefore, 
righteous in his eyes. And he knows only the man or the woman who understands this, who will truly repent. But you know, praise God, that he has come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, what is repentance? Well, as we have it described to us here, it is described to us as a forsaking of our way. That's the especially talking about sinful things. The sinful things that we do, we must let them go. We must forsake them. So that if you think nothing of telling a white lie at your work to get on, if you're greedy, or if you desire for violence after money, well, you must train yourself to act differently. The drunk must put away his bottle. The man who swears or blasphemes must train his tongue. The adulterer must train his eyes. The liar, the cheat, and the thief must forsake his habits. Because the seeker of God must forsake his ways. He must have his life reformed with the help of the Holy Spirit of God. But you know, if we left it at that, there will be many people who would justify themselves and say, well, you know, I've done most of these things and I look pretty good on the outside. But you know, this change must be inward as well. We must also forsake our thoughts. And you might be saying today, well, surely my thoughts can't be sinful. Surely my thoughts won't hurt anybody. Ah, but remember what Jesus says to us. He says that whosoever even looks after a woman, looks on a woman to lust after her, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in another place we read that the man who hates his brother, as if he's already committed murder. Because you see, our ungodly ways, they grow out of the seed that's planted by our ungodly thoughts. Those sins are premeditated sins. And you know, God knows our thoughts. He knows our thoughts from afar off. He knows when we sit down and when we rise up. He knows the words in our mouth even before they come out. He knows everything about us. And do you not think that your sinful thoughts, your bad thoughts, offend God, just like you offend them with your hands and with your mouth? I can tell you this, that they're just as dishonorable. And so we must train our thoughts with the aid of the Holy Spirit. We must turn our minds from these evil thoughts and seek to be perfect, even as our Holy Father in heaven is perfect. But you know, repentance wouldn't be true repentance without a 180 degree turn from what is bad to something else. And so when we turn from our ungodly ways and our ungodly thoughts, what are we going to face? Well, in our text here we see that can we turn to God. Because we, you see, we by our sin, we've distanced ourselves from God. <coughs> We've sinned against him and it's as if we run, we've run away from him. But now we're invited in forsaking our sins to return. But to return to God. Now, what if the prodigal son, who went away into a distant country and spent all the money that he'd taken from his father and spent it all on things of this world, and then found himself at the end of his broke with nothing but
but the pig's food to eat. What if that prodigal son had said, well, I'm going to reform my life. I'm going to get a better job. I'm going to quit my drinking and my adultery and all these things. What if, what if he'd done that? Would he have been a good man? Well, I can tell you this, he might have looked good. But that prodigal had to return to his father. He had to return. And so it is with us. It's not enough for us just to forsake our habits, to seek to look good. We too must return to God. We must return to our Father. Because you see, there's plenty of people in this world, and they break addictions, they break bad habits, and they do it without God. But what do they fill that empty void with? That empty void which was filled with their sin. Well, I'll tell you this, quite often they fill it with other sins different, more subtle sins, sins like pride and self-righteousness, sins like arrogance. Remember that Jesus tells a story about a man who managed to get rid of a devil out of his house, and he sweeped up his house and everything looked great. You know, he wasn't on his guard. And that devil came back with seven other devils and went into his house and made a right mess of it. So that the last state was even worse than the first state because he hadn't turned to God. You see, true repentance avoids more than turning away from what's wrong. It's an embracing of what's right. It's not only a forsaking of what's bad, it's a turning towards what's good. And that's what we're called to. And but you might be sitting here even as a Christian, or perhaps not, and saying, well, who's sufficient for these things? How can I forsake my pet sins? How can I live without these things? What if I fail? Ah, but you see, when Jesus Christ saves us from the punishment of sin, he also saves us from the love of sin. He doesn't only make you happy, he also makes you holy. And that he changes your nature, and he makes you a new creature in Jesus Christ. And although the Christian is always going to struggle to the side of eternity, yet when he looks into his heart of hearts, he or she finds that his real delight is to do what's right in the eyes of God, to do good and to hate sin. Well, what's our great incentive today to come to Christ? Well, is it not his gracious character? As we read on in verse 7, we read, and he will have mercy upon him, or compassion upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But what is this compassion? Or mercy? Well, mercy or compassion is a deep sympathy. For some of you, it's in a lower state than ourselves, and with a real desire to alleviate that suffering or that difficulty that they're going through even if they don't deserve it. And how does God show mercy to those who deserve de his wrath and his curse? Well, he does so by setting aside the consequences of our sins. So the Bible tells us that if we confess our sins to him, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because you see, because Jesus Christ has made atonement for his own people, God is able to put our sins behind him, to look at them no more. 
Because reconciliation has been made through sacrifice, God is able to cast our sins into the depths of the sea. They are to be remembered no more. That's mercy. But do you know what's why that's mercy? We read that he will abundantly pardon. And in the original language is coming that he will multiply pardons towards us. And you know this multiplication of forgiveness is something that's largely foreign to our culture and to be admitted to ourselves today. Forgive somebody once, yes. Forgive them twice, well okay. But if somebody keeps on sinning against us, surely there comes a time when we can turn our backs on them and to leave them to it. Well, Peter struggling with the same question, went to Jesus and he said to him, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother? Is seven times enough? And what Jesus said to him was this, Well, no, Peter, not at all, but seventy times seven. What he was saying was, Peter, my forgiveness is without limit. And therefore your forgiveness must be without limit. And you know, is there not comfort in this for the Christian today? That the forgiveness of God is without limit. That we who have abundantly sinned, who have multiplied our sins against him, that we will have these multiplied sins met with multiplied pardon. Is that not a wonderful thing for the Christian today? Surely we can say that there's no God like this God. Surely Micah was right to say, Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. My friend, know this, no matter how deep your sins are, no matter how you have offended God by trampling his law under your feet, no matter how abundant and numerous your shortcomings, we have a God in heaven who delights in mercy and who will graciously receive all of those who come to him in faith and in, and in repentance. Because there's no sin so great, no sinner so wicked, that God will not save him if he but comes. That takes us on to verse 8, where we read, God saying, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. We have verse 9 here illustrating what is said in verse 8, where we read that even as the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours. And you know, there's nothing as obvious to us today that the heavens and the skies are higher than the earth. And what God is saying to us too is this, that there should be nothing so obvious to you as that my ways and that my thoughts are about yours. Well, how is this? Can we give a few examples of how God's ways and thoughts are about ours? Well, the first one is this, just what we've been talking about. His ways and his thoughts are about ours in the way in which he forgives abundantly, in a way that is foreign to man, in a way that is unthinkable to man. Because as we've spoken, there is a great moral gulf between God and man, and yet God, through Jesus Christ, has bridged that gulf. So that as we sang earlier, for as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. The mercy of God is on an unimaginable scale. This is a mercy which is foreign 
to Muslims. It's foreign to Hindus. It's foreign to all the societies of this world. A mercy which is without bounds. And you know, when the Christian here today, when you realize how sinful you are, especially as a Christian, when God shows you the darkness of your heart, it's then that you can say to yourself, well, this mercy is truly without bounds. And surely the thoughts of God and his ways are higher than mine. But secondly, his thoughts and ways are above ours in the way that he orders his works of providence. Now what is providence? The Catechism asks what are God's works of providence? And answers like this, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. So that just as God made the world in creation, God preserves the world by his providence. He is a God who has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. There's nothing in this world that happens without God knowing it, without God planning it in advance. Well, how does this work out in practice for the Christian? Well, in Romans chapter 8 we read that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who have the called according to his purpose. And so the Bible reminds you today and me with you that if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, that God is working all things together for your good. Despite the difficulties, he will work all things for good. Now is this not difficult to believe? Does this not seem to many of us like a contradiction in God? If he's working all things for my good, then why the illnesses that I'm struggling with? Why the troubles in my family? Why the bereavements? Why the depression? Why all the difficult things? Why am I surrounded by troubles on every side? Well, I can't explain to you the intimate details of your providence. But what I can say to you is this, that the Bible tells us that God wouldn't allow difficulties into your life. He wouldn't allow evil in your experience if he couldn't take good when we go back to college in September, we'll start learning Hebrew. And when you read the Hebrew Bible, instead of reading like an English Bible from left to right, you read it back to front, you read it backwards from the right to the left. And you know, sometimes our providences, just like Hebrew Bibles, have to be read backwards. And it's when we look back on what's happened in our lives, these difficult things, these great trials, it's then that we'll say, the Lord worked that for my good. Through that great difficulty, which perhaps I'll never get over, he has drawn me nearer to himself. And he has made me, he's taught me to lean on Jesus Christ more and more. Because you see, God's providences will always fulfill his promises. Well, very quickly then, in the light, these high and holy thoughts and ways of God, how are we who are wicked and unrighteous, unrighteous, who are we going to seek to reconcile ourselves to the way that he would have us to live? Surely we must reconcile ourselves to his ways and to his thoughts. But we are to do so by repentance as we have heard. 
Or to know that repentance isn't just something that we do when we're converted. It's a life work. It's a daily exercise in an experience. And how then is the Christian, the one who loves Jesus, how is he to live? How is he to reconcile his ways? Well, what does Jesus himself say? He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And yes, he's speaking about the New Testament commandments, but he's also speaking about the whole word of God. He's speaking about the law of God especially, as we have it summarized in the Ten Commandments. And you know the believer today is to make these Ten Commandments his rule of life. Not just nine of them, not eight of them, but all ten of them. And you and me with you, we are to read these commandments, we're to study them, and we're to ask God, seeking and relying on the faith at all times, not in our own strength. We are to ask the Lord, how would you have me to live? How would you have me to fulfill this commandment? And you know, if it's the desire of our Saviour who did so much for us that we keep his commandments, surely we should keep them as a sign of our respect and our honour and our love for him. Because you know, God has given you during Christ today, he's given you all things. He's made you to be a co-heir with the Son, Jesus Christ. He's given you an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled. He's given you himself. He's given everything to you. But you know that God who's given you everything, he asks that you give everything to him in return, that we would do so. Amen. Let's pray. <coughs> Gracious and ever-present God, we confess our sin and our shortcomings. We confess that we are wicked and unrighteous by our very nature. And yet we call upon thee this day to have mercy upon us and to multiply pardon to us in our situation to meet our sins. Help us to humble ourselves and to call upon thee and to know that we have in thee a God who delights in mercy, a God who loves his own people and invites sinners who are unworthy to come to him with the gospel. Bless then all that we have said and done. Correct anything that was said or done on this. And we pray that thou wouldst have all the glory in Jesus Christ. Amen. So we can conclude our worship by singing again to God's praise. And this time from Psalm 130 to the Scottish Psalter. We find that on page 431. Lord, from the depth of the I cry, my voice, Lord, do I hear. Unto my supplications, voice, give an attentive ear. Lord, who shall stand with thou, Lord, should mark the iniquity? But yet with thee forgiveness is that fear thou mayest be. I wait for God, my soul doth wait. My hope is in his word. More than they that for morning watch my soul waits for the Lord. I say, more than they that to watch the morning like to see, but if I have hope in the Lord, for with him mercies be. And plenteous redemption is ever found with him, and from all his iniquities he is their shall redeem. The whole sound to God's praise, Lord, from the depths to the eye, 
my voice Lord, we like to Lord,